0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. We are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. I hope you have your Bible here or your device ready. Nehemiah chapter 5. This is uh, writings of scripture that were written thousands of years ago, and yet I believe they are so relevant for us today. And I hope that you'll see that too. So I want us to read through the first part of chapter 5 and look for, look for some relevance. Uh, see if you can see how this relates to us in our day. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry on these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. "'Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God "'to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? "'I and my brothers and my men "'are also lending the people money and grain. "'But let us stop charging interest. "'Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, "'olive groves and houses, "'and also the interest you are charging them. "'One of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. "'We will give it back,' they said, "'and we will not demand anything more from them. "'We will do as you say.'" Well, how does this relate to us? We've been saying as part of the series, we hope to revive our hearts with passion for God and renew our minds with the plan of God. How will that take place here from Nehemiah chapter 5? So let's just make sure we understand the situation here. Last week, Mark taught from both chapter 4 and chapter 6, where he described to us the opposition that the uh, Jewish people were facing as they rebuilt the wall, and yet they persisted they they stood against that opposition they persevered in the work of rebuilding the wall and yet here like so many times in Ezra and Nehemiah we see a tremendous failure of God's people seems like two steps forward a big step back there was a drought a famine we see in verse 3 and so those who had attempted to grow food on their own small plot of land or maybe grapes in their vineyard uh, They didn't get a harvest. So not only was there a shortage of food for these people, but there was a shortage of income. And so this was a dire situation. That's why verse 1 says there was this great outcry against their fellow Jews. Who were their fellow Jews? Well, the rich, the people who had resources and multiple fields and vineyards, who had a big bank account. In fact, what was happening is they were taking this as an opportunity to get richer. It's like so many things that happen in our world. When bad things happen, the poor people get poorer, the rich people get richer. So what were the wealthy Jews doing? It seems that they were hoarding grain. Of course, they want to be able to replant next year. So that's why in verse 2, we're hearing them cry out, We, we, we have to get grain. They couldn't even access, it, access the grain because those who were wealthy who had it were hoarding it. Or they were no doubt selling grain at inflated prices. So people who didn't have grain and didn't have money couldn't afford to buy it because the price was so high. Or we see in verse 7 that they were lending grain or selling grain with an interest in order to profit off of these people who hadn't been able to grow their own and had to buy it. So now they were profiting by the interest. We also find that they were Trading people. We'll give you grain or we'll give you money. You give us your house. You give us your vineyard. You give us your field. It belongs to us now. So they were trading grain for real estate. And worst of all, they were enslaving. People were giving their own children. We find them saying, Some of our daughters in verse 5 have already been enslaved. They've been enslaved to fellow Israelites out of their poverty, out of their need to purchase grain. So they sold their own children in order to buy it. That was the only way they could survive. Uh, What do you think Nehemiah's response was? Well, it tells us in verse 6, when he heard the outcry and these charges, Nehemiah was very angry. There's a place for anger. Someone once told me that it's not wrong to be angry about the things that make God angry. And no doubt this situation Made God angry, and Nehemiah was right to be angry about what was happening. And so, what was his response? I want us to see this starting in verse 9. He says, First of all, what you are doing is not right. God give us leaders who are willing to say, when appropriate, that what we are doing is not right. God give us leaders who are willing to call us out when we are being unfaithful to God and dishonoring him and not following his word. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. I don't don't know how well Nehemiah knew the scriptures. Um, Next week, we're going to see from chapter 8 that Ezra, who is a scribe who's well-educated in God's word, is going to come and help this remnant of people understand God's word better. That's going to be the focus of next week's message. Did Nehemiah know the word of God? He must have known it to some degree. Um, And I want to show you some examples from the Old Testament law, which the Jewish people should have known, Nehemiah should have known, seems to have known. Exodus 22 says, If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. This is the word of God. Or Deuteronomy 23, Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else, that may earn interest. Longer passage from Leviticus 25. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers. The Israelites are my servants. Whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do you see how Nehemiah 5 is in direct violation to God's word? And so Nehemiah was right to call them out and to say, what you are doing is not right. We could call it what it is. It was sinful for the Jewish people to treat one another this way. Even the songbook of the Old Testament uh, refers to these same themes. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? In other words, who is worthy to be in the presence of God? And the answer comes, the one who lends money to the poor without interest. And even the book of Proverbs gives this same teaching. Whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. In other words, Scripture says, God will take away the wealth of those who oppress the poor. This is the word of God. We're going to find out next week that part of the problem of Nehemiah chapter 5 is that the people of God had forgotten the word of God. The people of God had abandoned the word of God. All of those years of captivity in Babylon and under even the Persian Empire, the people of God did not have the scriptures of God, the Old Testament, They weren't reading them. They weren't learning them. They did not know them. And so what was happening here was being done in ignorance simply because the people had lost touch with God's word. Now, one of the reasons I think this passage is so relevant for us today is because I fear that in our day, we are in danger of becoming biblically illiterate. Where we... uh, as a denomination, the Brethren people used to be known as walking Bibles. That wasn't all good. I met a lot of people who were walking Bibles and were all too pleased to let you know how much of the Bible they knew. That wasn't good. But it's also a terrible disaster for us if we become a church of people who do not know the Word of God and we're not reading and we're not studying. We have so many distractions in our day. Technology, which is supposed to make life easier and give us more time, steals our time and saps our time, and we waste so much time when we could be reading God's word. Are we becoming, are you, biblically illiterate? This is something, as a church, when we think about the discipleship path and following Jesus and becoming more like Christ, we know that comes through learning. What did Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all nations baptize them in the name of the father son and holy spirit and teach them to obey everything i've commanded you we follow jesus by learning his word and obeying there's no shortcut to that that's the way we do it so we must know god's word so i i challenge myself all of us today are we readers of god's word Are we those people who meditate on God's word? Are we saturating our lives with the word of God? Not for pride, not to show off our knowledge, but to simply know the mind and heart of God. When I talk to young people who seem keen to follow Jesus, I will often challenge them to consider as they get through the end of high school, would you consider, yeah, and I know it's a big sacrifice and a big cost, would you consider a year of Bible college? That's becoming something that's much less common today, and I know that, The cost of post-secondary is enormous. As parents, is that something we're willing to support our kids to do? Why? To help lay a scriptural foundation for the rest of their lives. Something that I believe uh, you should consider. We don't want to be those who are biblically illiterate. We're going to find out next week. By the way, next week... We're going to introduce a 40-day Bible reading challenge. We haven't said much about that yet, and I forgot to mention it in the first service this morning. But we're going to introduce it next week when we talk about Nehemiah chapter 8, and we see Ezra teaching people the Word of God. And we're going to start the following, I think it's the following Sunday or Monday. Um, And so... Everyone's going to have the opportunity to participate. You're going to get some literature. You're going to get a bookmark. You're going to get a a little booklet that you can write things down as you read. You're going to have the chance to talk about what you're learning in your small groups. So we have that upcoming 40-day challenge of Bible reading. So Nehemiah's response. First of all, he calls out the sin. What you're doing is not right. Second of all, he appeals to the fear of the Lord. And you might remember that that scripture we read from Leviticus appealed to the fear of the Lord. So see it there. What you are doing is not right, verse 9, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? In other words, he's saying really clearly that the way that these rich people were behaving, using their money, taking advantage of others to make more money, getting richer off the backs of those who were poor, mistreating their own countrymen and having uh, as their greatest desire in life to make more wealth. What Nehemiah says is that kind of person clearly does not fear God. We talk about fearing God and maybe that strikes us strange in our day. That's one of the things that's so common is a struggle in our culture is a struggle against authority. And so when we think about fearing God or when we hear God saying to us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, maybe we, maybe that does, doesn't sit right with us. We feel unsettled by a God who would demand that we respect and reverence him. And yet God, who is our creator, knows that we can only be healthy, we can only thrive and flourish as human beings when we have a deep reverence for our creator and for us, our creator and redeemer. When we do not reverence God, we are reverencing something else or someone else. God made us in his image. He made us as worshipers. If we are not worshiping God we will be worshiping something or someone else. It's, it's inevitable. And so it's clear to see in chapter 5 what these rich Jewish people worshipped. Nehemiah says, you're not fearing God. You're not worshiping God. You're not submitting your lives to God. You're not submitting to his word. What you're worshiping and what you're reverencing is wealth. Now do you see why this relates to us? It's so applicable to us in North America because we are the people throughout the world who are the wealthiest. We have tremendous wealth. We have so much. Uh, we live in a little, our local culture here. I'm coming to see this, how industrious this area is and how, how many people have started really good businesses and become extremely successful, which isn't necessarily wrong. But we're living even in a local culture here that is very good at, very set on financial success and business success and material wealth. And brothers and sisters, we have to be really careful not, not to get sucked into this. This is a warning that's all through Scripture, starting in the Ten Commandments, of course. We should have no other gods before us. Nehemiah is saying, if you fear God... You reverence and worship him. When you reverence and worship God, you won't be reverencing and worshiping something else, in this case, material things. So he appeals to the fear of the Lord. What is it that we worship? Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, speaking to us as his followers, gave the same warning You cannot serve both God and money. See, this is a worship principle. We can't have both God and money as our God. It doesn't work. We can only have one God before us. And that obviously should be the God who made us and redeems us. If money clouds the way, then God is no longer our God. We're worshiping an idol. Paul would say the love of money, not money itself, but the love of it, the thirst for it, the longing for more, is a root of all kinds of evil. And then in Colossians, this convicting verse to me is that we are to put to death. He gives a list of things there, and he finishes the list with greed. Put to death greed, which is idolatry. I dare say that most of us in this room know what it is to struggle and wrestle with greed. Uh, There's probably many of us who, during this sermon, will be thinking about something that we hope we'll have the money to buy sometime soon. And this is something that I wrestle with as well. It's part of our culture. It's part of being saturated with materialism all around us. Nehemiah would challenge us and Jesus would challenge us and Paul would challenge us not to fall into the false worship, the idol of materialism. So Nehemiah's response, first of all, to call out the sin. Second of all, to appeal to the fear of God. And then finally, thirdly, to appeal to their reputation among their neighbors. Look again at verse 9. It continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? And then notice, to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. To avoid the reproach of our Gentile. Think about that. You think about the chapter 4 and chapter 6. Think about all of the opposition that these non-Jewish neighbors have been inflicting upon the Jewish people as they try to rebuild the temple and now rebuild the walls. What does Nehemiah care if the nations don't like the Jewish people. And yet it reminds us of what God's purpose was for Israel. We've talked about this. His purpose for Israel was to make Israel his own special chosen people. And as they followed his laws and as they worshipped him, they would be a light, a missionary nation to the nations around them. And Nehemiah is appealing to that. This is what God's intention was for you, Israel, that the neighboring nations would look at you and not reproach you, but see the beauty of God's character through you. And instead he says, you're bringing reproach. These Gentile enemies of yours, these neighbors reproach you. Why? Because they look at you as a people and they see you selling yourselves into slavery. They see you, the rich of you taking advantage of the poor and getting richer. They see you as a people, as a nation, not taking care of one another. And they say, "This, even we do that. Even we take care of our own people. How was the character of God seen here? It wasn't seen. So Nehemiah appeals to this. This concern for our reputation among the nations. Is that something that's relevant to us today? Yes, it is. In fact, it's seen throughout the New Testament, it's seen in the words of Jesus. On this occasion, after he'd washed the feet of his disciples and said, You need to go and do likewise, and then he taught them this love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see the testimony that's embedded here when the community of God's people live in such a way that we love and care for one another. In fact, so much of the New Testament is instructing us about how we do this. You ever heard of the one anothers of the Bible? There's a lot of them. Love one another. Forgive one another, accept one another, encourage one another, on and on. So much of the New Testament is teaching us, here's how you should behave as a brotherhood, as a family of God. Why? Well, it's because it's right. To do it makes us God-like. We actually see a reflection of God in one another. To do these things makes us as a community a shining light to the world around us. I have met, Christi- I've met people who get exposed to the community of believers, a community with, that's doing this, It's really loving each other, where it's expressed in really open and vibrant ways. And, I, and I've heard people say, I see a difference here. What's going on here? There's, there's something about you people. I heard that numerous times in our years in Gory. This is God's desire for us is that we would so love and care for one another that the gospel comes to life in our lives and in our relationships. See, there's no no way of skirting around the fact that we need to be preaching and declaring the gospel. I'm not suggesting that we do this instead. No, we will always, must be people who preach and speak the good news of Jesus. But when we do that and when people hear the good news from the context of a community of love, where, where it's obvious, it's visible, where gospel, grace, uh, self-giving love is evident. It brings the gospel message to life. It makes it far more potent. So Paul would say this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I would say these are two of the greatest struggles that we have as North American believers today. Number one is our struggle against materialism. Number two is our struggle against individualism. Those two things. And these are the two things that scripture tends to point to that would say this this sets you apart as holy. This sets you apart as God's people when you handle money in such a way that you're showing that God is worth far more than your bank account. When you treat one another in such a way that you're showing that we are the people of God. These are two of our greatest struggles in our day. How are we doing with these things? So let me just say that our family has been the recipient of tremendous grace and kindness since we've come here, and especially since we bought an old church. And Saturday after Saturday, I've had people coming to help us, um, and we are so grateful. My question is, how, how far is that spreading? I, I almost want to say, like, keep it coming for another month or two here, but the reality is, we, because I'm, because I'm in ministry, we, we've been the recipients of this, and my concern is, are there others in our church family who need help? Are there, people, are there families in our church family right now, maybe a single-income family, where the cost of groceries and gas right now is a problem, and the cost of rent? I mean, those of us who own real estate have... In our time here in these last two years, we've become much richer, actually. Our net worth is much higher. Those among us who don't own real estate, net, net worth, is, in a sense, has gone down. We have people among us, I'm sure, who are struggling to make ends meet week by week. I hope that we, as God's people, can have open hearts to how God wants us to minister to one another in these times. And, and would we pray and say, God, is there someone in our midst, someone that I know, someone maybe that I don't know who could use a little help right now, who could use a $100 gift card to a grocery store to the gas bar? Spread it around. This is what the people of God do. And when, when people walk through these doors and they see the way we love and relate to one another, may they see Jesus and may they see the gospel. You know what Paul said, He talked about how Christians should greet each other. He said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, Personally, I'm really glad we don't practice that. I'm really glad. But there's a principle there that is timeless. We don't toss away any verse from the Bible, by the way. So if we're not going to literally practice kissing one another we sure better be obeying that scripture in appropriate ways for our culture. And what is Paul saying when he says that? Greet one another with a holy kiss. What he's saying is, I want your love for one another to be visible. So someone comes in off the street and meets you for the first time, but that's probably not, not the person to kiss, but let them see the tangible love. Let, let them see it. Let it be tangible. Let it, let it be real And so we can find other ways to do that. As COVID restrictions wind down, I'm so excited that we will have greater freedom to do that, whether that's hugs or handshakes or fist bumps or whatever it is for you. And always, by the way, if it's a kiss of love or a hug of love or a fist bump of love, make sure the other person finds it loving. (laughs) Remember this one guy who decided, well, I shouldn't kiss people, but I'm going to hug everybody. I saw a lot of tin soldiers that just stood there totally freaked out by what was happening. Do, do it in a way that's actually loving to the other person. Be, be sensitive to that. But, but let our love be seen. One last thing. Nehemiah's response. He does something that's kind of strange. He actually appeals to his own example. Starting in verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. And then later in verse Fourteen, kind of gives the history. says, From the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until this 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them. In addition to food and wine, their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. In spite of all this, the end of that next verse, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. So Nehemiah appeals to his own example. By the way, this is... This is a great example of leadership. Many people have looked at Nehemiah as a tremendous example of spiritual leadership. Nehemiah was not perfect. In fact, under his leadership, chapter 5 is an example uh, of of how a lot of things didn't go well. You get to the end of the the book, chapter 13, uh, Nehemiah's final acts were to bring a whole bunch of reforms that were required because under his leadership, people went totally off the rails. Nehemiah, like all of the biblical characters, is flawed. Have you ever thought about how the Bible finds ways to demonstrate, tells us stories about some of our favorite characters, Moses and and Jonah and and David, and and doesn't just tell us about their spiritual victories, tells us about their spiritual failures, the darkness of their lives. Why? It's to show us that David's not good enough, and Moses doesn't cut it. And even Daniel and Nehemiah are not adequate for us when it comes to a true spiritual forerunner. We need someone greater. Paul would say something similar to Nehemiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he would say, follow my example. But he goes on to say, because I follow the example of Christ. And if you understand the Bible correctly, you will realize that the hero of the Bible is not Nehemiah or David or Daniel. There's one hero it's Jesus. And Jesus, of course, went far beyond Nehemiah, and yet Nehemiah's life is an example of what Jesus did that though he had everything, he laid aside all that he had and he set a table before others who had need. That's so what Nehemiah is describing here. In fact, we didn't read the verses of all the, all the choice meat and the sheep and the poultry and, and beef that he set before those who came to his table. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. The ultimate example is Jesus laying aside his own treasure Paul sums it up in Second Corinthians chapter eight: "You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich." There's great confusion in the church today by something we know as the prosperity gospel. This idea that if we come to faith in God, that God just wants to bless us and He wants us to be healthy and wealthy, And, and that is not true. That is why scripture tells us the story of Jesus and tells us this wonderful good news that through his sacrifice and through his poverty, we can have spiritual riches. But the, the New Testament calls us to do what Jesus did. Not, not to go in a totally different direction and say, oh, Jesus suffered for me, so now I get to be rich. The Bible calls us to follow in his footsteps, First Peter Chapter 1 says that. That in his suffering, he set us an example that we should follow his steps. We don't do that in order to earn our salvation or to prove our worth to God. We're not worthy. We do it to put the gospel on display. What is the gospel? It's this. It's this wonderful, amazing story that there is redemption for sinners like us, Because there was a perfect Savior, the Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who laid aside all of that to come to our world and suffer, live in poverty, and even die on the cross to produce our redemption. That's why we share communion. Because we need to be reminded of this. And as we're reminded of the suffering of Jesus, we're reminded to fear the Lord, to have reverence for a God who would do this for us. We're reminded that the purpose of our lives is not to get rich, to have financial success, to have more than everyone else. The purpose of our lives, as we see in the discipleship path that we've been showing you is to follow Jesus. And that was his invitation to us. When Jesus said, come follow me, he wasn't saying, I'll do the suffering. You can have all the fun. He was saying, come follow me. Live out the gospel. Take the gospel to the nations. Let them see the gospel as you are willing to set aside all that you have for the good of the other. In communion, we're reminded what Jesus did for us. We're reminded that this is the only way sinners like us can be redeemed is because of what Jesus provided at the cross. But I also believe that communion provides us the opportunity to look closely at Jesus. This is what Paul is appealing to here in this letter to the Corinthians. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at what he did. Look at the beauty of his life. Look at the beauty of his character. Because when we look at Jesus and remember what he did for us, it transforms us. 2 Corinthians says that, that we with our unveiled faces, next Sunday, unveiled faces, get to look at the glory of the Lord. And we're transformed as we look at Jesus, we are transformed. So that is what communion is about. We remember his suffering. We remember our salvation. We remember our unworthiness. And we also remember our marching orders. Jesus says, follow me. Be willing to suffer for the sake of others. Not to earn your salvation, but to put it on display. May God help us. So let's remember the Lord. Let's take this bread and consider his broken body. We give you thanks, God, for who you are. We thank you for your son, for all that Jesus did for us and all that he means to us. Lord, help us to love him more, to marvel at the beauty of his character. And I pray, Father, that we would become more like Jesus as we gaze upon him, Through your word, change us, God, as we share this bread together. May we become what this bread represents, our our Lord and Savior, the bread of life. We thank you for this juice, Lord, and reminds us how Jesus poured out his lifeblood for us. Lord, would you show us what it means to take up our cross daily, to be willing to pour ourselves out, our resources out for the sake of others in order to show that we fear God, reverence him above all else. As we share this, Lord, I pray that any idols in our lives would be stripped away, that we would worship God, worship Christ alone. And may our love and our sacrifice for one another put this gospel on display for the world around us. Thank you for this memorial. Amen. That's the thing.